Hey, welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward, and this week we are talking about mountain biking and bike packing and and living like a modern day nomad in a camper with Scott Morris, uh awesome dude. We'll get to that in a second. But before we do, I thought it would be interesting if we gave you an update on recent accomplishments from some of our previous guests. So I brought up SoundCloud and I'm looking at all the pretty pictures uh, that I put as podcast covers and I'm kind of just going to go through them really quick. I guess a good place to start would be episode number 22 with the Iowa Hawkeye starting tight end George Kittle, whose recent success was getting drafted. Well, first of all, if you listen to that podcast, it was while he was training for the NFL Combine, and he kicked serious butt in the Combine. I think he had the third fastest 40 time for tight ends, but it was something like one of the best ones in the last 10 years, one of the best times. So he kicked butt. And then he was drafted by the San Francisco 49ers. So he will start his rookie season next year. Um, we're looking forward to following following his accomplishments there. Uh, yeah, and then we'll go up one episode, number 23, Sarah and Wes Turner. They were talking about um, training for Boston. Sarah finished the race, which was great. I think that was her goal. And Wes was actually disappointed of his time of two hours and 32 minutes which is an insanely fast marathon. And he got 65th place out of every single person who ran Boston. So holy crap. I think that's a huge congratulations towards Wes. Uh, Going down a little bit, number 20 with Iron Cowboy James Lawrence. He just recently released his book about the 50-50-50, which I just ordered and you should order too. Um, TJ Anderson came on here to promote his book, The Art of Health Hacking, and he was trying to get it, trying to find a publisher. And I'm happy to say that he found a publisher. So good job, TJ. One of my personal podcast favorites, Brady Manriquez, has basically used his own story of getting healthy and running his first half marathon to promote health in other people, specifically the people around him, as he has convinced his dad and his little brother to sign up for their own race uh, this summer, which rocks because we're trying to spread goodness. And I mean, that's spreading goodness to the people you care about the most, which is amazing. Um, Ryan Esdor, who if you haven't listened to that episode, he's like, the quote-unquote Yoda of the Like a Bigfoot. He just drops crazy advice. Uh, I believe that's episode nine. He Or episode eight. He has opened Superhuman Lab, or he is opening Superhuman Lab, and he's also started his own podcast called Inside the Lab, which is just great. I don't know how else to, <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. It's a really good podcast. It's all about movement, mobility, um, their own experiments, that they do in the superhuman lab. Uh, so yeah, check that out inside the lab. Um, my wife, Lindsay Ward, has signed up for her first half marathon. So that's going to be an awesome journey. 
this summer. Um, Adam Casey, who will be back on the show in a few weeks, he is training for what seems like one of the hardest marathons, the Leadville Trail Marathon. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. Uh, Susan Knoll finished her stage race down in Mexico, and I believe she placed. I just texted her to see what place she got. I think she got either second or third, which is awesome. Um, Cameron Doran set another world record, <laughs> this time getting the most people to do air squats for one minute. <laughs> he got 817 people doing air squats for a whole minute. That's super cool. Uh, all at once. Um, Jason Schlarb got ninth place at Transvolcania Ultramarathon in Spain. I mean, the list goes on and on. <laughs> I'm going to feel bad if I leave anyone off of this and I feel like I should just keep going. Uh, <laughs> but man, they're, the the Like a Bigfoot community, they're, they're doing great. They're really inspiring. They inspire me every day. Uh, I mean, you got Calvin Johansson out there with his Join 100 Club, getting people to make 100-day commitments and really stick with it and stick with their own goals. I mean... If anybody can start their own positivity cult, <laughs> it's going to be Calvin. Uh, and Travis Steffen's still out there training for his next big thing with his crazy morning routines. <laughs> and finally, I mean, everyone else who I haven't mentioned, I'm sure you guys are doing amazing things too. So you're the best also. Um, and finally, Jake Reed still has an awesome beard. So there you go. So previous guests doing some cool things, pursuing some really excellent adventures and awesome goals. Um, and honestly, today's guest, Scott Morris, just fits right in. He, he does his own epic things in his own way. And uh, we're going to hear all about it here. He kind of was one of the, I don't want to say originators, but definitely when bikepacking started becoming a thing, Scott was one of the people to help help put that stuff together. So we'll hear all about that in a moment. But before we do, uh, the best way to support this podcast, if you're enjoying it or you're gaining uh, some wisdom or inspiration, because trust me, I'm gaining, out of everybody, I'm probably gaining the most wisdom and inspiration because, man, these the people I'm, I'm being able to talk to is just freaking blowing my mind right now uh but the best way to support us is to go on itunes leave us a review it only takes one minute to do um you know subscribe if you're enjoying them and you know just spread the word that would help us out you guys rock all right without saying any more stuff or blabbing on once again if i missed you brandon sweat will sieber jill campbell shada hussein Tim Wambach, you're the man, Joel Bound, Shane Doughty, Peter Majarek, Melissa Sinclair, <laughs> I'm just reading through all of my guests now, Annie Gordon Perkins, who's awesome, and she just got a new camper to live out of. It kind of fits in with today's episode, so if you're interested in Scott's stories of living in his camper, you can go back and listen to episode number six, and of course, Aaron Johnson, who is about to take his two kids on their first big backpacking trip so that's gonna be fun and then 
the one, the only Matt Rackers, who gave us advice to finish your first half marathon. Uh, yeah, they're all doing amazing stuff too. Dude, these are just great people. Um, and then, of course, you got the most recent ones, James Campbell, Eric Schrantz, Candace Burt, Simon Donato, Jason Southerth. <laughs> I'm laughing because this just sounds like one big advertisement. But really, I, I started it with the best notions at heart. I just wanted to give these people props. So you guys are doing great. Okay, let's get started with the podcast. Episode number 40, Scott Morris. This is 40. The appeal of the bike pack racing at least came from was at the time, uh, you know, 24 hour races were really big and I just could not really convince myself to ride the same course, you know, over and over for 24 hours by myself. Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> and the longer, the longer route, um, definitely, uh, spoke to me much more. Yeah. Well, can we kind of get started? Like in your, I want, I kind of want to hear about your history and, you know, how you started bikepacking and like, is, was, was that a thing for a while before you started or is that something that's kind of new? Well, it depends on your viewpoint. I mean, people have been riding bikes and touring and camping off bikes since bikes existed, you know, so it's not really a, a new thing, but, um, in our little niche we we like to think it was new but i think it was mostly just fooling ourselves that we were uh, doing something you know cool and new and important and all this stuff but yeah what we what what was happening is in the early well mid 2000 was just that a little bit the ultralight movement and backpacking was happening and so gear got a lot lighter and then there were a couple new ideas with how to carry it on a bike that made it so you didn't have to use panniers or a bob trailer and to me and some of our some of my friends it really just opened up uh, bigger possibilities for what routes um, you could consider possible on a multi-day uh, trip and that's where my usage of the term bikepacking uh, came from which was that it was more like backpacking but with a bike and so you were really on backcountry trails or at least somewhat, but really mountain biking instead of, uh, dirt roads or, or pavement or, but now the term bikepacking really, and it applies to any kind of bike touring, I, I think is the more general usage. But. Okay, cool. So is, I mean, I'm looking at your pictures and I see like a bike folded up and like put on your back. <laughs> is, uh, yeah. How often do you have to do that? Uh, not too often. I would like to do it more actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, believe it or not. But, um, because unfortunately uh, in wilderness areas, what I'd love to do is be able to bike pack through wilderness areas by carrying my bike, but it's actually not legal to possess a bike in federal wilderness areas, even if it's disassembled. Okay. So, but there are a few cases where carrying a bike is the only way to get across. And one of those is the Grand Canyon. And so that's how I first got into carrying a bike on my back was that I wanted to through ride the Arizona trail, uh, from Mexico to Utah. And there's this bit of an obstacle in the Northern part of the state. That's this really deep Canyon. That's very famous. Yeah, man. I might've heard of it. Maybe. Yeah. A couple, couple of people I think know about it and visit it every year. 
But uh, riding bikes is a big no-no, and they, you know, they confiscate and they're very serious about it. And uh, but uh, a friend of mine named Lee Blackwell sort of knew one of the superintendents up at the park uh, at the time. This was in 2005, I think, and he was able to get permission for us to, as long as the wheels did not touch the ground, uh, we could disassemble our bikes and put them on our backs and hike from you know, rim to rim, from south rim to north rim, and then reassemble the bikes and continue riding and go and finish the Arizona Trail. Is it just because it's so such a, like, gnarly terrain, and it would be, I have to imagine, it would be incredibly dangerous to ride a bike? That's right. And, um, it's just you could, it would be a disaster if it was open to bikes. People would, people would fall off and kill themselves. I mean, people fall off the trail just walking. Wow. Um, yeah, and then the other thing is that other hikers, it, there's such popular trails at times that, you know, to be riding down um, while other people are, you know, while you're dodging hikers would be really dangerous. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not that it's wilderness. It's just that it's not safe and doesn't make sense. Yeah. How big of a pain in the butt is it to disassemble your bike and then put it back together? Uh, it takes a while for sure. It's not a quick transition. Yeah. Um. And it's a little nerve-wracking when you take the first few steps and you're sort of looking down at the abyss and you're wondering <laughs> whether your whether your wheels are going to fall off or, you know, or something something's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So are companies kind of like catching on to this trend and making it easy to break bikes down? Like I guess I'm imagining a transformer toy. <laughs> as stupid as that is, you know, where it'd be kind of something like simple to twist into place and then have the bike assembled. No, no one. I, there, uh, there's been, a few, I've seen a few photos of uh, purpose built packs for carrying bikes, but I don't think anyone sold more than a handful of those. Yeah. Um, Cause like I said, there's not that many cases where it really makes sense for putting together a, a true route. Okay. Um, but, but uh, so usually people uh, who ride there on a trail and do the canyon crossing, they just make it up. I mean, it's just throw a bunch of straps in a pile and just start, you know, putting things on and hope for the best. <laughs> so everyone kind of has their own style of back, like bike packing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They, um, you know, it depends on what pack you have. Some people have done it with their just little day packs that, are really just designed for carrying, you know, five to 10 pounds of, you know, like a, a little day adventure pack. And it, it doesn't have the padding. It doesn't have the support. And it's really, really uncomfortable <laughs> to carry, to carry what amounts to, you know, like a 40 to 50 pound load when you have your bike and you have food and you have water and you have your, your kit, your, your actual, you know, sleeping bag and everything. And, uh, it's, yeah. Yeah, man. Well, I definitely want to hear about the Arizona trail. Um, because I think it was either a year or two ago. I saw, um, this ultra runner, Joe Grant. I remember following him on Instagram and he was doing the trail and I was just like, my mind was blown. And I was kind of like, this is something people, people do this, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, yeah, Joe had a, um, a a great run um, on the uh, the trail, and he was doing um, the race, which is called the Arizona Trail 750, um, which is the kind of unofficial underground race from border to border. And I believe he placed second uh, that year, and nice. one of the faster times on the route uh, for sure. 
Is, but, um, so it's it's not do you do you i mean i guess if it's underground i can't really ask you if you organize it right <laughs> yeah i uh maintain the web page but uh you know it's it's, it's loosely organized for sure <laughs> that's good is this something kind of like uh you know where like fight club where you you don't really know when it starts unless you're like in it you know <laughs> if that makes sense <laughs> uh yeah, no. Uh, I hope it never comes to that. But uh, right now, it's advertised. You know, start time. Oh, start cool. Okay. So the, the route's there. It's totally open to anyone who wants to give it a try. Um, and uh, and we have a tracking system as well. And so you know, Perfect. everybody can see where how many people are doing it and how many people are out there and where they are. And uh, so far, so good. But um, you know, the future of that race is not not certain for sure really is it like every year you don't know if it's going to happen or uh I, yeah i just there's in my mind it's a legal event because it falls under forest service non-commercial rules and 75 people are left but um you know the park service knows about it and they kind of tolerate it but that could change i think at any year and if there's if there if somebody runs into a big problem or something happens, you know, I, I'm oh, not yeah, sure, yeah. but yeah, but so far so good. It's been going uh, for eleven or twelve years. I think 2006 was the first year I did the the 300 uh, mile version of the of the race, which is kind of the more single track heavy okay. uh, portion of of the route. But um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, how long does does it usually take? Um, the fastest time for the 750 is just under seven days, and that's Neil Belchenko. Um, yeah, he's got the record. Uh, he's a quick dude. He lives out in uh, in Gunnison or Crested Butte, okay. Colorado. Yep. Who they and claim to be the mountain bike capital of the world. I don't know if you would agree. Um, being in, uh, <laughs> they have a very short riding season. That's the problem with seeing the mountain bike capital. That's true. Of the world there. That makes sense. Yeah, I agree. But they. They do have some incredible writing, though. Crested Butte's a beautiful place. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, so, man, how much did he sleep? I mean, pretty minimal. Um, <laughs> you know, a few hours a night, maybe. And um, I'm not sure if he did any all night pushes, but probably at the beginning, a lot of people do. Um, but wow. Yeah, certainly not more than three to four hours in, in any given night. Wow. And you're just, I'm assuming you're just kind of throwing a sleeping bag on the ground and that's about it? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you just get it, get exhausted or you're, you're starting to hallucinate or whatever and uh, you have to crash. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, do hikers see people doing this event and they, I just, if I was hiking and I saw some guy just like laying on the side of the trail who looks like they've been riding a bike for six days and they're just passed out, I might be a little concerned. Yeah. <laughs> people, um, especially towards the latter part of the race, people start to look pretty bad and, and um, may not be all that coherent. <laughs> so, so it's definitely... Uh, um, I'm sure it's a site. I think it's more people in the towns than the hikers that you come in to, to the town and you're, you've got to do, you know, A, B, and C, and you got to go to the grocery store and you're interacting with, with people and they they can probably tell that something's not, 
yeah. quite right, or you're you're on some kind of mission. So <laughs> that's amazing, man. So how did you? I mean, kind of take us through your life and how did you get started mountain biking and and being in the outdoors? Okay, uh, so I grew up in Salt Lake City and uh, was horrible at any kind of athletic pursuit um, as a kid and junior high and everything, just like scrawny and. Did, but anything with a ball was just, you know, not interesting at all. And I was horrible at it, but my dad was really into fitness. And finally one shining day, he bought me a mountain bike and that just stuck. And so when I was 13 or 14, luckily there were trails that I could ride to from my house. And I just fell in love with the freedom and the exploration and the views and, and everything that came with it. And I just started mountain biking as much as I, as I could. And, um, and then I discovered the desert in Moab and eventually moved to Arizona for grad school and uh, just became more and more obsessive with mountain biking. And I think sometimes for some people, it's kind of a, a trend where you just keep pushing your limit um, a little bit more and see, you know, how many more miles you can add on or if you can do this loop. And, and then eventually you hit the limit of daylight where you know, there's only so much you can do in, <laughs> in one period. And I didn't, I, I didn't realize that, you know, that you could carry camping gear, um, on a bike and certainly mountain bikes. But what I did hear about was, you know, more traditional bike touring with bob trailers. And there was a route that's been around, uh, since early 2000, uh, called the great divide mountain bike route, which goes along the continental divide. Uh, you know, Mexico to Canada. And so I decided to tour that uh, with my girlfriend at the time um, with, with the Bob trailer and panniers and, you know, the whole nine yards, big, big kit and way too much stuff and so comfortable camping too. It does have its advantages. Um, yeah. And so we were touring uh, the great divide mountain bike route from South to North from Mexico uh, up to Canada. And it just happened to be 2004 which was the first year of a race under another underground race called uh, the Great Divide Race, uh, the GDR, which sort of started this whole bike pack race scene. Uh, and that was uh, put on by a friend of mine whose name was Mike Kuriak. Um, and he kind of, he wanted to race the divide and put, put together the format, the self-supported rules and everything. And he got five or six people to do it, uh, that race in 2004. And so I ran into everybody doing the race going southbound. And actually when I ran into Mike, he came around a corner and he was leading the race at the time. We're touring. And I thought he was just out for a day ride. I mean, he had so, <laughs> he had so little stuff on his, on his bike. We we're kind of in the middle of New Mexico, not near any town, you know, not, <laughs> And I, and I was so confused. I was like, here comes this guy, and he's out for a day ride. Oh, he must be out for, like, some big, you know, 120-mile, you know, gravel road loop. And turned out he was racing the divide, winning the race, you know, and he had only been riding at that point for something like 12 or 11 days. or wow. something ridiculous. And that just blew my mind. Um, you know, certainly the pace and the racing and everything, but what was really, what really caught my attention was just he was traveling in the backcountry on dirt, uh, with that little stuff and that it was so light, so compact. Uh, he was a master of, of being, you know, trimming everything down. And 
I immediately started thinking that you could mountain bike with that setup, that you could take it on single track and, and, uh, that it might still be fun. It might still be worth doing. And so at that time I had was living in Arizona when I rode the great divide route and I became aware of this, uh, that there was this long distance trail, which I thought was for hiking, um, across the state. Cause I would ride in certain areas and I would find these signs, the Carsonite that would say, Arizona Trail, and I always noticed that every time I saw Arizona Trail signs, the riding got really good, and the trails were really good, <laughs> and <laughs> slowly I put together that uh, it was a trail across the state, and so once I saw Mike's setup on the Great Divide uh, race, I thought, you know, maybe it would be possible to go that light and really try to ride the whole Arizona Trail and ride all these difficult, uh, you know, backcountry sections of single track, and um and so I got a buddy, Lee Blackwell, and I uh, convinced him to uh, try to ride the whole trail. And that's when we figured out how to cross the canyon and carry our bikes across. And we did as much of the trail as we could, which resulted in a ridiculous amount of hike-a-bike and difficult conditions and just really slow stuff. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. How, how much <laughs> of it – yeah, I mean, you got to love it at that point. But yeah. how much how much of it is – like technical how much of it is challenging in that way um a lot i mean arizona is a pretty rocky state uh the trail the riding just overall is, is sort of challenging but um it's gotten a little better um these days um the arizona trail association has built a lot of new trail and improved some of the older trail and some sections are, are great i mean you know you could take beginners out on and you're just like coasting and carbon turns and loving life you know yeah but uh uh, it, it varies. It's a very uh, um, inconsistent uh, trail as far as it can go from nice and lovely for you know one mile to hike a bike and unrideable the next mile. <laughs> what uh, what's your fa- do you have a favorite section? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The uh, there's kind of east of Phoenix, but it's um, just north of the Gila River. There's an area that uh, we call the Inner Canyon, but it's this uh, section near the White Canyon Wilderness, where luckily the Arizona Trail Association kept it out of the wilderness just barely. So you're kind of tracing the boundary for a while, okay. um, so that it's so that it's open to bikes. Yeah. But um, just incredible rhyolite towers and monoliths and cliffs, and it's uh, you know I always tell people it's the closest thing you can get to riding your bike in the Grand Canyon. Oh, so I mean, cool, stunning scenery and with saguaros and you know all that Sonoran Desert uh life and and use gates and stuff so it's it is it is incredible so the the piece to be to do that ride is you can actually do it as a day ride and there's a town called kelvin and a and a trailhead called picket post so picket post to kelvin that about a 40 mile stretch and that that's kind of in my mind the uh flagship piece of the arizona trail awesome man so i went to the desert for the first time back in march and I mean, the thing about Utah, and you know if you grew up there, is there's just so mm-hmm. many different, uh, you know, you're, as you're driving every hour, there's completely different scenery around you. Um, mm-hmm. And then my buddies dr- drove north from Phoenix, and they said the exact same thing. I mean, it's just such a unbelievably pretty part. Like, you think desert, and you just think, at first, well, I did anyways. I just thought, like, desolation, like nothing. Yep. But you get sure. out there and there's so much 
there's so much wildlife even it's crazy so much different types of plants and animals and birds and the yeah and particularly the the sonoran desert um in phoenix and in tucson um is just has such a diversity of of plants and animals um you know the coronado coronado national forest which is a big one down by tucson they claim they're the most biologically diverse forest in the country because they just have the most number of plants and animals uh, more than anywhere else. But yeah, the diversity of the whole, you know, Colorado Plateau is just pretty astounding. Yeah, man. So have you had any run-ins with wildlife while you're biking? Uh, nothing, um, nothing. Well, I have felt, I certainly felt frightened at times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, the first year that I did the Arizona Trail 300, uh, which was that kind of race is from Mexico, the first 300 miles of the trail, basically. Uh, and the reason it stopped there was because uh, there's a lot of wilderness after that, and you have to do a bunch of road riding. Okay. Um, so that was my first idea for a single track bike packing race was to race that 300 miles uh, on the AZT. So uh, anyway, the first year uh, I was finished, I was getting close to the finish and I was going up this kind of like this block canyon. Um, it's actually open to like ATVs and motos and stuff, but it's called Box Canyon, but it's uh, near the Gila River and pretty narrow uh, little deal. And I was going up just blitzed out of my mind, uh, you know, hallucinating and really, really tired. and. I think I I knew I had a few I definitely had a few more hours and a few more clients to go though so it's yeah. not like I was you know could smell the finish <laughs> but it's probably one a.m. one a.m. or or midnight or, or oh, uh, middle of the night and I I stop at some point in this box canyon and I have I'm shining my headlamp um, all around just sort of taking in the all the colors and the patterns of the of the rock there uh, and as I'm shining around I see a pair of eyes. Uh, up on the top, up on the top of the cliff, and I'm looking at them, and I think, okay, that's that's not, they're not small, pretty big. I can tell the spacing. Uh, I'm not sure what color uh, mountain lion eyes are, but I'm thinking, you know, that could be a lion. Yeah. And and so I kind of look at it for a while, and it's just stone still. And uh, I continue. I decide I should continue and get out of there. You know, and obviously I'm still racing too. And but it then I makes can't you get go it out faster, of, right? A little bit. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, my heart was definitely going a little bit. <laughs> Just so, an extra boost you so needed. Then, yeah, exactly. And so then I'm uh, riding a little bit more, and I can't help but keep scanning the cliffs, you know, because I'm just thinking like, what is this cat doing? And two more times, I swear, I saw the exact same oh, color man. and spacing of the eyes. And so whatever this was, which could have been a mountain lion, it was following me. And then, of course, I had the genius thought of, I'm in a slot canyon, and if this cat wants to pounce on me, A, he knows exactly where I'm going, and B, oh, he yeah. knows, probably knows the, the best place to pounce on me. <laughs> oh, my God, dude. <laughs> what do you do? Do you just, I mean, I guess I was talking to Candace about this a couple of weeks ago, too. I mean, do you just... I mean, you have a bike, so do you just lift it over your head and, like, try to scare Yeah, it? I mean, you could use it. I guess you could use it for a, a little bit of a shield and try to hide under it. But I guess with a cat, you know, you, you fight back. But, oh, man. Uh, yeah. Obviously, I wouldn't tell the tale. But uh, I think at the second or third time after I saw the eyes um, again, <laughs> there was a 
a big javelina that just came darting out of the bushes next to me. And that just about, you know, knocked me over. I mean, I was just, I, yeah. Yeah, man. Well, there you dude, there you go. So you could just tell the mountain lion to chase the javelina. You'd be fine. Right. Yeah. Maybe it was hunting the javelina. Oh, it could have been. Yeah. yeah. That's funny, man. What about snakes? I always hear if you're riding your bike and you hit, like if you, if a snake was across the trail and you just hit it head on, the motion of the bike wheel would just send it right into your chest. Is that true? Uh, I don't think so because oh. I I have seen people run over a snake or two, um, unfortunately, Jeez. sadly. But it, that that usually happens when they're stretched out across the trail. Yeah, and they're not they're not coiled up, so they can't they can't actually move or do much themselves, but. They don't. They definitely don't pick up on your tire. Okay, that's good. I don't <laughs> know why. I, I think I'm sure that's like a, a what are those the urban legends, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, snakes are definitely a concern um, out on the trail. Um, I haven't had any close calls. Uh, I guess I always uh, fool myself with the belief that people who get bit are the ones who mess with the snakes. And so I just don't mess with the snakes. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't, I think that helps if you don't, you know, yeah. but there isn't, there isn't, I don't think there's anything that, you know, completely protects you from them. Of course. That's but, true. Um, well, they rattle, right? I mean, you should have a fair warning, but I guess you're going pretty fast on a bike. Yeah. At times. Well, my, my your worry is kind of when you're in an overgrown area and, uh-huh. and you're off the bike. So you're pushing your bike through the grass and you're always sort of wondering, you know, how many snakes you're walking by. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. yeah, man. Uh, so you did the Arizona trail and then that was that kind of your first time realizing you could take on these longer, uh, bike packing trips. Yeah, that's right. Um, that was definitely an eye-opening thing that, you know, you could do a, a long um, backcountry trail, you know, with the bike and uh, have it be possible and, and even enjoy it. And uh, so, yeah, we threw the trail, and then I had um, – and then I decided that it was a good idea to race those 300 miles of it. And uh, that, to me, was kind of a thing. It was something that would have happened um, eventually, certainly, but uh, uh, all the – the ones, the races that Mike had started and that a few other people were doing were uh, more dirt road bike packing. Okay. So, uh, and not not single track and not so much you know hike a bike and that kind of thing. And so the, I think the AZT 300, uh, at least in my mind, was the first race to uh, put bike packing uh, onto single track and uh, and see what happens. And it was an experiment. You know, I didn't know if I was even going to finish the race the first year. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> how many people did, I, was it just you the first year did i mean it was you and your buddy or was it did you have a whole group of people uh there were six people the first year um and i think half of us finished so okay. yeah three finished and, and three uh dropped out but um and now you know we've got 50 or 60 people doing it every year so it's gone gotten a little bit out of hand well, yeah. between the 750 and the 300, there's probably around 100 did it this year. That's but. awesome. What? Uh, yeah. So, do more people do the 300 or the 750? Uh, about half and half these days. Okay. Yeah. I'm just I'm asking mostly for myself because 
It sounds like <laughs> something that would be really fun to pursue. Uh, I just you should do it. I, I know. It's, well, I have a ways to go because two weeks ago, I finally convinced my dad. My dad used to live in Colorado, and you know, most people during their midlife crisis buy like cars or go on trips and stuff. And he just bought like this sure. badass mountain bike. Um, nice. probably like eight years ago, seven years ago. So it's older, definitely. But, uh, and then he moved to Iowa and he stopped using it recently. So I finally convinced him to give it to me. <laughs> and there so two days ago was my very first ride, um, out here. Not my first ride ever. I've done it before, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And I definitely, it was so much fun. First of all, I was like, this is like mountain biking is just a ton of fun, but I have no idea how to go down a hill, apparently. So, any tips? <laughs> yeah, well, you'll you'll pick it up quickly. It's <laughs> not that you know difficult. It's just just like anything, practice yeah. it and it comes. Yeah. But is there? It is just, a fun way. It, it yeah. is a fun way to travel. I mean, just there's something about it and the distances you can cover, and you know. Yeah, definitely. So I'm like, yeah, eventually someday I would love to do something like the Arizona Trail or, you know, something where you're doing a multi-day kind of experience, uh, I think would be really cool. Um, So I saw on your website, you also did the Continental Divide Trail. That's right. Yeah. And that was uh, with my my girlfriend, Esther. Uh, And that was two years. Let's see couple years ago summer of 2014 um and so the original race i was talking about earlier or the original route that has the race on it is the great divide mountain bike route which is the kind of the bob trailer you know dirt road county road type of route that follows the divide so parallel to that is the hiking trail which is the Connell divide national scenic trail and um for some reason the two of us thought that it would be a good idea to try to (laughs) mountain bike uh, that as much as we could, or as much as we saw fit. Yeah. And uh, it was a fantastic way to spend a summer, but it's not something I would recommend to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> not very rideable or, um, areas yeah. were the areas you couldn't take the mountain bike in. Uh, certainly a lot, uh, several wilderness areas and national parks. Um, and, and in that case, we just had to make up our own, uh, route, you know, around them, which, uh, which was honestly a blessing um, in many cases because we were so worked over and exhausted from the sections that we were trying to ride that, you know, when we got on a dirt road, there was free of obstacles and down trees and snow <laughs> and everything. It was like, oh, our mountain bikes are actually useful now. This is, this is great. We're, we're riding. And yeah. Uh, because, yeah, there were some days on that trail when we camped nearby some other thru-hikers and kind of passed them in the morning and then we would ride and we thought we were making good progress. And then we would set up camp again at sunset and the hikers would come and set camp with us again. <laughs> so we were, we were not going any faster than the hikers um, on some days. They were and, like, yeah, we saw, we were just behind you the whole entire time. We could see you guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, there were a couple of days when we didn't, we failed to cover 20 miles wow, in, man. In, in a full, a full day's effort. So, not like hitting the trail, you know, right at sunrise, but that was the focus of the day, you know, was to 
eat breakfast, get going, move during the day. And yeah. And then we'd get tough. We'd look at the GPS and be like, Oh, 19 miles. Wow. Was it just the mountain <laughs> state? Like when does it get hard? Uh, uh, they, every state um, it has its challenges, yeah. but, uh, for us, the, 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 uh, the hardest part was the, there's a section along the um, Montana and Idaho border and the trail just really follows the actual continental divide. Oh, wow. And a lot of times it's and on the CDT, they call them PUDs. It's pointless up and down, uh, <laughs> is what it, what it stands for, <laughs> which that, you know, that applies to many trails, but it's especially good on, especially putty um, on the continental <laughs> divide in places because the trail designers really wanted it to follow the, the spine of the mountains in places. And so that just means you're going up and down these ridiculous hills. Uh, and, and so it made it very slow, but, um, also that section is just, it's not really well maintained or traveled ever. So there were a lot of down trees and, um, just sections that really weren't or places where it's cross country where they're, you're on the divide, but there's just, you know, bushes and, bumpy grass and so you know it's just good walking with a bike but definitely yeah. slow slow going yeah how do you maintain relationship happiness on a trip like that <laughs> uh yeah that's a good question um <laughs> because it, it is a, it is a tricky one especially when it's difficult and you're suffering but um one thing that was really in our favor on the CDT is that we were working uh, somewhat. So we had our, we shipped our laptop um, from post office to post office, uh, just general delivery. And so I had to to uh, track events at certain times. And so it sort of forced us to pull up in town and rest and so work. Give you a little break. Computer. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we weren't, and it gave us a little bit more balance, but I think that helped the relationship side of it. But uh, I think mostly you just have to credit Esther for being tough, <laughs> tough as nails and tougher than I am. And um, just keeping a good attitude uh, throughout the whole thing, because that was definitely not a, not an easy no, summer. <laughs> definitely. Well, man, I want to talk a little bit about what you guys do for work uh, because, well, super long story, how we first got in touch was from, our uncle joel <laughs> right yeah yep but uncle you know how they're like brother from a different mother i was trying to think of a yeah. rhyme like uncle but there's nothing that rhymes with <laughs> uncle you know what i mean yeah yeah uncle from a different uncle <laughs> <laughs> yeah man so we both share an uncle but i was asking my wife and it's uncle joel he was on the podcast um back i think it was like episode 16 or something Cause he's an outdoorsman yep. himself. Uh, but, uh, I was asking my wife this morning, I'm like, how, how does this work? Like, are we related somehow or, you know, and then I just figured it'd be so complicated and it'd be like a giant math equation that I couldn't even figure out. So anyways, yep. <laughs> so yeah, I was, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what, how that would work either, but, um, <laughs> Yeah. It's just funny, man, what uh like what connections and small community the uh wilderness athletic, you know, community is really. Um because then so we were contacted through Joel and he was like, You should talk to uh, my other nephew. He's doing this he does all these awesome things. Um 
And then after I interviewed Candice, you emailed me and said that you actually, we talked about your guys' company on that podcast um, because you track some of her events. Yeah, that's right. Uh, she had some great um, events and hers are you know long enough that uh, employing someone like us at, uh, at Trek Leaders is, uh, makes a lot of sense because uh, she's got people out on these huge 200-mile running courses and she really needs to know where people are. And then it's just such a long event also that uh, it makes sense to go through the trouble of finding everyone the tracker and making sure they're engaged and have fresh batteries and everything. And then, uh, we put it all together into a, a live map, um, that shows everybody shows where everybody is. And, you know, you can track various statistics and stuff and see who's winning and see how far behind people are and That's so cool. all that stuff. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great job. Um, I'm lucky to have gotten into it. Um, partly because it aligns so much with my own interests um, and also because it's a fully mobile uh, way to make a living um, you know, we can be uh, camped out, you know, just about anywhere as long as there's cell service and I can be tracking uh, events around the world. So you don't actually have to go to the events necessarily. Uh, no. Uh, so Trek Leaders has two people, it's myself and my partner, Matthew Lee, who um, he runs the, the new version, the bigger version of the uh, Divide race. Uh, and he, uh, he lives in North Carolina, and I live wherever, um, <laughs> in, in, in the mountain west, wandering around. Yeah. Uh, but uh, occasionally he will have to travel to some of the bigger races. Um, such as uh, I did a rod or the Baja 1000, some of the really more intense uh, events. But generally, no, we ship spots out to uh, some of my Candace, and uh, and then I just set up all the software and do the programming um, remotely. That's awesome. I think so. it. I think obviously it helps with safety um, for the racers, but. Also, just from a spectator's perspective, I mean, you could go on and technically follow the race live where, you know, you're not going to have any other way of doing that, especially during like an ultra endurance event. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where that's where the whole idea for track leaders came from is that uh, Matthew just loves the divide route, the great divide mountain bike route. He just has so much passion for that route. And he started running the tour divide, which is the, the current race on it. And uh, his, it was really his idea to um, get in touch with bots, get some trackers, and he came to me for the software side um, of the tracking, the whole tracking system. But his idea was that there was no way to spectate a race like that that's 2,700 miles across the country and no way to kind of generate, you know, some enthusiasm. And, uh, and that's where it whole, the whole thing uh, came from. Yeah. So we were sort of participants first and then, uh, you know, wanted a way to, to kind of follow our own, uh, event. And then it just sort of grew from there. But, uh, and it becomes, it becomes an obsessive thing there. We have a term called blue dot junkies is what we call it. Where, yeah, you know, it's like people's family are at home or people are in their office and when they should be working and they, they sit there and wear their mouth out, you know, yeah. clicking, Man, <laughs> clicking I call refreshing. it. I just call it worried moms, the worried mom syndrome. 
Uh, yeah, that that adds that adds to it for sure. But the part <laughs> I really love about it is, uh, I mean, that's good. I like you know, you know, Mother's Day was yesterday. I like helping mothers feel less worried. <laughs> that's really the good the good thing to bring into the world. But yeah, uh, also also what I really love seeing is when people follow their friends. You know, some work buddy or some riding buddy. You know, they follow someone that's doing the Arizona Trail race, uh, and they they get obsessive over the tracker and they see it and they see. They get an understanding of it, and they get a stoked kind of building. And then next year, they decide they're going to do the race. That's true. And that man. has happened. That has happened over and over again. And that's one of the things that really uh, keeps me going on, on all this tracking. Oh yeah, the so. the more easily accessible it is for spectators, the more people are going to first of all hear about it because you know some of these races. They're, like you said, they're pretty underground. So how are you going to hear about them unless you maybe know someone who's in it or you've found an interest in it and, you know, you follow an event like this. And, yeah, it, it's just natural that it would inspire people to, to go after it themselves. That's right. And I, and I kind of feel like it's a little more organic way to discover an event and have a passion for something and have an investment in it. Because all, all of our bikepacking races, you know, we don't really advertise or we don't have sponsors and, yeah. and you know, all, all that stuff. And so people kind of stumble onto it and it kind of takes a little while to understand really what it is, what what it is that their friend is doing and what the rules are and kind of how it works. But then they get it and they just, you know, dive in and it becomes an inspection. And so that's fun to see. Yeah, so cool. So are you an active participant in these races? Uh, not in the last few years. Um, I, I <laughs> we like to say Esther and I that we've wisened up a little bit, but uh, I think the, I think the truth is we're just not tough enough anymore. But uh, <laughs> uh, we, you know, we've kind of raced for a few years, and it, it is a very hard thing on your body to do, especially with the sleep deprivation. Yeah. Um, you know, they. I feel. I kind of feel like you only have so many efforts in a person, but that might be my own uh, personal weakness uh, <laughs> speaking there because there certainly are people who are very prolific bike pack racers and uh, seem to be able to do it uh, endlessly. And I definitely admire uh, that ability because it is really fun uh, when you're out there. Uh, the, the high moments of it, you know, there's lots of low moments as well, but the high moments are just priceless when everything's going right and everything's flowing. But, um, I yeah, think the, the low t- the low moments are just as priceless, but in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. They're sometimes sometimes more memorable. Memorable. That's yeah. very true. Yeah, exactly. but um, the recovery time can be very long sometimes. And I got um, imagine. Wow. We've definitely there's definitely been some people who have uh, some friends who have kind of flamed out, you know, and they they were very strong and very very capable, and then they. Uh, you know, had started having some health issues and just didn't have the have the ability to do it anymore. So it's, it's a tough thing. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever have you had any memorable low moments? Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's a dumb question because it's like, of course you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely been. I mean, if you don't think that you're gonna, if you don't very seriously consider quitting, you know, then I guess you're not pushing hard enough. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I've. I've, I've definitely, uh, you know, wanted to quit very and started making detailed plans for quitting um, many times out there. Wow. Um, well, I have quit. Many, I have quit many times as well yeah. uh, at certain races. But there's always a, there's a saying in the bikepacking world to never drop out of a race until you've slept on it. And oh, there so, you go. That's a good idea. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing what, especially if you can find a, a town and get, get a you know a shower and a and a night in a hotel. Like sometimes you can wake up and you're like, oh yeah, the world is actually not that dark and yeah. gloomy of a place. And here I am, I'm on my bike, I'm not working. Let's go forward. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah, man, definitely. What about uh, injuries? Have you had any any crazy injuries? Uh, luckily, I have not. I've been pretty lucky so far, knock on wood, as far as crashes and everything go. Yeah. But um, definitely had some, you know, overuse type things. Uh, the first year I attempted the uh, Great Divide race, uh, I crushed my ulnar nerves just from the pressure. So that's the nerve that goes to your pinky and half of your ring finger. And so just my, from pushing down on your on your handlebars. Yeah, just from riding a bike too many. Too many hours during the day. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so I was I was really worried that the, the feeling was never going to come back, and so I could not feel my whole both hands, my pinkies, and half the inside, or I guess the outside of your of my ring finger. And it took three months before the feeling started coming back. Oh my god, dude! <laughs> what did the doctor say? You're like. He's like, hey, how did you uh, how did you hurt this? And you had to explain riding your bike for yeah. thousands of miles. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, and they luckily the doctor was actually pretty encouraging. He's like, it's probably not you know totally severed, and it the, it will grow back. It just grows back at a very uh, slow rate. You know, something like a millimeter uh, per week or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. But, so. So I know that you and Esther, uh, I remember when Uncle Joel sent me the, like, you should talk to this guy. He mentioned that you guys basically live uh, nomadically in a little trailer. And that's that's another topic that uh, definitely fascinates me, especially as, uh, you know, a guy with two kids and just got a house. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, man. Sure. Like, you daydream about (laughs) it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So how did you wind up, how did you wind up doing that? Um, it was really Esther's good idea. She's just had a, a, uh, fascination with, um, Team Mobile and, uh, Airstream trailers and just that whole, you know, mindset. But, um, we also fell into it, I think, because Arizona gets very hot yeah. <laughs> in the summer. And uh, even when I was a grad student, I just I would always leave um, for the summer. Uh, and I just told my advisor, you know, like, no, I don't want funding this summer. I, I don't work in the summer because I didn't want to hang out there when it was super hot. And so I'd always go to Colorado or Utah or, or somewhere cooler and somewhere where I could go explore and do more fun stuff. And so sort of just became a little bit of a lifestyle of never being in one place, um, uh, you know, year round. And, uh, so it kind of was an extension of that, that, the, that, uh, moving into a trailer and going fully mobile, um, especially given that our, both Esther and I have jobs that are, uh, you know, that are internet based. Um, so we just saw that opportunity to, uh, to go for it, to go for the dream, I guess. That's cool, and, man. Uh, yeah, we're lucky to be able to be in a place in our lives that, you know, we have the ability uh, to do that and the desire, and we're both on the same page with that. So yeah, I where, feel very 
where do you guys usually stay at night? I mean, are there certain spots where you can go and just pull up and it doesn't cost anything and you can just camp out there? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's one of the things we're blessed with here in the yeah. in the West is so much public land and uh, the dispersed camping rules are pretty generous. And it's one of the great things about this country is that, you know, you can pull off on the side of a little pull out somewhere or a little dirt road off the highway and call this area home. For, yeah, man. You know, usually up to two weeks is often the stay limit um, on forest, on forest and BLM land. And it's an incredible thing um, to do that we're very lucky to uh, be able to take advantage of. We are. I mean, technically, it's public land. So technically, you own that land, which is, you yeah, know, that's, that's, right. a, yeah. that's a topic I'm really <laughs> getting interested in lately, especially after moving west. And like you said, just seeing how much public land there is. Um, mm-hmm. It's great, man. I mean, yeah, most I, you go to other places in the world and you don't have these same privileges that you have here. And I don't think people fully realize that or fully appreciate it yeah absolutely and some people don't really realize that you can actually camp in all these places and uh, you know campgrounds are great too and a lot of people use those and we use them too but there is something to the just free you know boondocking as many as some people call it um where you you know you're just in a dispersed site and you have no services or anything but yeah it's it's a pretty good way uh to live yeah man what uh what's your guys setup like uh it's pretty simple for us we just have a <laughs> a cheesy little minivan um <laughs> that, that the bikes go in and like i still am surprised every time that is able to pull this trailer up some hills <laughs> or over a mountain pass without blowing up <laughs> but uh we do have a pretty light trailer it's a, it's a scamp which is uh like a fiberglass kind of one of those eggshell uh, little trailers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. It's very small. It's only it's technically a 13 foot trailer, but the that includes the tongue, so it's actually more like 10 feet of space. It's about 10 feet by six feet. So. And you just throw in everything you need in there, and then you're good. Yeah. Yep. That's awesome, man. Yep. That's so cool. I can't. I so. I can't even believe I have totally blanked on this, but you guys have mountain biked up 14ers, right? Uh, yes, a few. <laughs> okay. I'm this yeah. on the podcast. Uh, it's funny just how much I, maybe it's just me cause I'm obsessed with 14ers, but how many times the, that comes up as a topic, <laughs> but then, you know, yeah. hearing about mountain biking mean, from is insane. <laughs> uh, sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So, a couple of them are, are somewhat sane, uh, okay. the mountain bike up, but, um, yeah, the others are, uh, some of the others are, you know, more of a hike with your bike, and then you sort of uh, give yourself a lobotomy at the top and convince yourself that it's a good idea to start trying to ride down. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it works out sometimes, but, uh, you know, you end up walking, of course, too. Some of, of course. Descent, but, um, yeah. But, yeah, you know, 14ers capture everyone's imagination. They're the biggest mountain, you know, in the in the uh, lower 48 and there's so many of them in Colorado and they're such striking peaks and, um, yeah, there's a lot of reason to be excited about them. Yeah, I man. Think. Which ones have you guys, uh, biked on? Um, so this past summer we did a loop that we tried to link 
what I called the semi semi rideable 14ers, <laughs> which, was, which was the ones. So my rule, and it's totally arbitrary uh, and subject to my own weaknesses yeah. and abilities, but uh, was that there had to be something that was worth riding on it, and even if it was only you know a mile or two of the descent. But there are a couple of 14ers that you can carry a bike up to, but you're going to carry your bike back down it too. <laughs> and so we we excused ourselves from those. Um, there are people who are much more hardcore than us. Uh, who uh, actually, actually a couple of years ago was really the first time that uh, some people were uh, trying to hit take a bike to the top of every legal 14er you know, wow. in Colorado. But um, my idea was a little different, um, which is the less hardcore version for yeah, sure. You wanted to actually but, ride it. Yeah, that was the kind of the idea. And so we started in Salida and we hit up uh, Shivano with the first one. Uh, and that's one of the harder ones for sure. Okay. And then, uh, and then Antero is right nearby and that's a great ride that would actually recommend to other people. It's just probably my favorite descent in all of Colorado is coming down off of that uh, mountain. And then, uh, Huron is another pretty good one, which is north of there. And then Elbert is kind of the first 14 er that most people, uh, ride or that, and that one, you can actually ride the entire descent. I mean, it's not I'm not saying it's really a great idea for everyone to try to, you know, clean the whole thing. Yeah. But but um, I didn't, you know, ride the whole thing. But um, I I know it can be done. Well, and it's, it's actually you can ride you can ride a fair bit of the uphill too. It's very steep. But, yeah. But it's not but like it's giant pretty, boulders or anything. It's mostly dirt, a dirt path the whole way up. Yeah, that's right. And even when you get up into the talus and, and such, it's um, there's a pretty good path, you know, scratched out. It's the highest 14 in Colorado, right? So a lot of people, uh, it's very well used um, and yeah. hiked. And so it's actually a pretty good trail. And, man, there is nothing like clipping in at the top of Elbert, you know, knowing that you're standing at the highest point uh, in, the, in the country or in the lower 48. And riding off the top and just starting and cleaning switchbacks, you know, through this talus field, um, that is, you know, one of, That's awesome, one of the most man. memorable. Yeah. Wow. Um, what about massive? Yeah, Did so, you do that one? Uh, nope. That's in the wilderness. Oh yeah. Okay. You're right. Okay. I forgot yep. that about that so there are, obstacle. Yeah. There's, there's 50 some odd, you know, 14ers, right. I, yeah. I believe. And, uh, only maybe 12 or 13 of them are legally open to bikes. And then under my own, uh, my semi-rideable <laughs> definition, I think that cuts it down to eight or nine okay. that are, that are uh, in, in my opinion anyway, worth taking a bike <laughs> up. And, uh, and so last summer we did this, this tour over about a week and we rode all of the semi-rideable ones except for Pike's Peak. And just because we didn't have time to uh, hike is sort of way out there on its own, yeah. out, out by the spring. And it's a great trail. I mean, that the fact that that trail is still open to bikes, that you can ride all the way from Manitou Springs to the top of Pikes Peak and climb, you know, what is it, 8,000 feet, I think, on single track. Crazy, man. Yeah, you start, you, start, you start at about 6, and then you go up to 14. The fact that that trail, as popular as it is, is still open to bikes, that's probably my favorite mountain bike ride I've ever done in Colorado to climb bikes. That's awesome. How much does it suck when you get to the top and you have no oxygen and you're still going up? Uh, um, you know, it definitely makes it harder, but I, 
for whatever reason, I kind of enjoy that yeah. hypoxic feeling. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've only been to 14,000, so I'm sure it gets much worse as you get higher. <laughs> yeah. I got to imagine. But, um, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. But I enjoy it. I enjoy the challenge of trying to, you know, clean a really difficult rock section or a switchback or something that, uh, uh, with that limited air in it. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Uh, so do you have any, you know, future plans? Like, well, I guess, where are you camping at right now? That's always fascinating to me. Uh, yeah, we're, um, kind of near Canyonland National Park, but okay. we're up above, Mo- up above Moab. Oh, um, so I'm looking cool. down on Monitor and Merrimack and, and Moab Rim and behind the rocks and all and the lapels and everything. Um, so yeah, we've been in Moab for a few weeks because it's just such an amazing place. There's just so much to do here, um, both riding and, and been, we've been doing a little bit of trail running um, as well here. But um, yeah, Moab season in the spring has been what we've but we've uh, been uh, hitting for the last few years. Yeah. Um, where do you go? Where do you, do you have certain spots that you always go to, or are you just kind of open to just exploring? Um, this campsite we're at right now is a, is new to us, but a friend of ours kind of turned us on to, um, and it's fantastic. But, uh, yeah, we do have, you know, we're starting to build a little bit of a uh, list in our heads of the sites that we know we can get into and that are, uh, whether or not they have cell service, which sometimes is important to us, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Especially so, if you're that, working, that I got to imagine. Uh, yeah. You know, it is nice to be totally disconnected at times for yeah. sure. But gen- generally we, you know, we, we need to be at least near cell service. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Yep. Well, do you, any big adventures this summer planned or? Nothing really. We, um, we are kind of into this, uh, smaller, you know, day adventures lately where we just go to a place and, and see what's there and, and kind of come back to our, our camp every night. But, um, but we've got our bikes and our bike packing and, you know, and, and backpacking gear and everything. And I'm sure we'll be doing some, some overnighters, but, uh, it's one of the great things about, uh, the mobile life is that you don't have to plan, you know, sort of suit people who don't who don't uh, like to plan and more play fly, fly by the seat of their pants yeah. style. So that's, yeah. that's sort of more our thing. But, um, yeah, no big races or anything. Cause we're sort of off the, uh, um, just kind of as much as we used to, I guess. Yeah, man. What, uh, so I guess last, last kind of thing here, just selfishly for me, if I'm starting off, uh, mountain biking, what, mm-hmm. what kind of advice would you give to, uh, a, a beginner um and assuming you want to get into long distance stuff yeah so yeah um i mean first you gotta get kind of the basics of technical writing i guess or at least semi semi technical just so you have the confidence to uh um get out you know to be able to cover most kinds of terrain but one of the one of the great things about biking is you can always walk, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Don't I, feel ashamed I do of walking. <laughs> no, yeah, actually, that's a that is a great piece of advice right there. Because some people do. Some people feel like they're doing it wrong or, or something yeah. that they're. And in my opinion, you're doing it right when you start when you start walking your bike. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, yeah, you kind of have to 
just pick up the, the, the few basics of, of, of riding your bike um, first. But um, so you you are a runner, right? Yes. Yeah. That's my yeah. kind of. Uh, current sport i guess um the thing i love more than anything uh but i need to find more of the events is adventure racing which is usually mm-hmm. just a combination of all sorts of outdoor events like running biking canoeing so i kind of figured if i got better at mountain biking it would help out um in that aspect yeah yeah for sure it's usually a part of a lot of those events and it is you know often the best tool to cover certain types of uh terrain you yeah. know, and and one thing that's really cool that we like to do a, a lot is um, when you, you, there's a trail or something that it may be closed to bikes or it may be a route that just doesn't make sense to carry a bike on at all. But oftentimes they have like an approach that uh, on a four wheel drive road or dirt road and would really suck to have to drive or you have to have a, a you know a jeep or something to get to. You. So a mountain bike can also be a really great tool to get into a place and then stash your bike, you know, in the woods or somewhere and then continue on by foot. Oh, so yeah. That kind, of, that kind of thing is super cool. <laughs> but um, I guess for someone who wants to get into bikepacking, another other piece of advice would be to not sweat the gear and everything too much. That if you can, you know, camp pop out of the backpack, just figure out any old way to put it on a bike and, and go go bikepacking and try it out um, you don't have to have all the fancy latest uh bags and and everything and even the fanciest lightest sleeping bags and everything like that and and also don't worry about the bike you know any any bike is good enough to well almost any bike is good enough to and it sounds like your one you got from your dad is going to be fine you know as long as it's not a hundred dollar walmart yeah. special or something <laughs> um as long as it's not going to completely fall apart um, in the middle of the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then I think it's, uh, you know, going to be fine and, and straps and once you get a little bit of you know, some day rides in, yeah, don't be afraid to strap a bunch of crap to handlebars and, and, and carry a big backpack and go right out somewhere and camp and, and try it out. Yeah, man. I love, I wrote down after you said it, you said the limit of daylight and I was like, that's mm-hmm. genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know eventually you run you run into that and and you know well the other way of course other than carrying sleeping stuff is to just keep riding and ride all night <laughs> which which people do but um you can only do that for so long and and um there is something to to camping too yeah it's a nice part of the experience yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on today, Scott. That was awesome. And, uh, you know, sure, yeah. if you, if you guys me. are in Colorado, definitely, uh, shoot me an email or something or get in contact and we'll, we'll try to do something. Yeah. We, I would love to go for a run. Um, we will, we will definitely be in Colorado, uh, once it, uh, heats up a little bit more here in the desert. Yeah. That's the next stop, I think. Awesome, so. man. Awesome. Well, thanks. And, uh, yeah, we'll catch up at some point. Great. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Chris. All right. See you, Scott. Yep, have a good one. All right, big thanks to Scott Morris. I'm going to call him my kind of cousin. I don't actually think we're cousins. But we have the same uncle somehow. It makes no sense. <laughs> if someone could explain this equation to me, that would be great. Um, so, yeah, big, huge thanks to Scott. I'm planning on actually meeting up with him sometime in the next few weeks and going on a trail run or learning the ancient art of mountain biking. Um, 
when he's when he leaves his current home, which is a beautiful view in Mo like Moab or like the desert, and he makes his way up to Colorado. So looking forward to that. It's gonna be a fun time. Um, he was awesome. He was so awesome. So thanks again, Scott. Thank you. I really really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, real quick outro this week. For the rest of our shows, you can find us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Just type in like a Bigfoot. Uh, basically, we have the promise to you to keep putting out episodes every single week uh, with people who are inspiring to me. <laughs> that's, that's as simple as it gets. It's really cool having a podcast because you are you get inspired by somebody and then you send them a message and say hey man will you just will you talk to me (laughs) which would be like a weird thing to say if you didn't have a podcast so if you're listening out there you should totally start a podcast and just seek out people that inspire you because you're going to take weekly or daily or or whatever you're going to take that inspiration from them and you're going to be able to use it in your own life to better your own life and go after your own goals uh, which I'm hoping everyone's going after. I wrote something this morning that was basically talking about the joys of pers- the pursuit of a goal. Not even necessarily like accomplishing it. Accomplishing it is great, but the actual finding joy in the actual pursuit of it is really key. Uh, so I'm finding joy of the pursuit for me, which is to put a podcast episode out there once a week for a whole year was the original goal. And now it's just going to be to put a podcast out there once a week, uh, indefinitely. So yeah, keep coming back, keep listening. Um, we're going to bring you all sorts of various athletes, all sorts of outdoor stories, adventure stories, people who are explorers, um, Explorers in their own right, whatever that means, whether that means like actually like shackletoning it up uh, and like exploring an unexplored area or like a physical, unexplored physical area or just being an explorer of themselves or I don't know, like humanity in general <laughs> or something. So we'll keep bringing them, bringing them to you, which leads me into next week's guest is going to be Alan K, who is an outdoor survival expert, um, wilderness survival skills. He goes around the country teaching people. Basically, uh, you know, if if it came down to it, what would you need to do to be able to survive in these wild places? And man, it's a really good conversation. Um, he also won the History Channel reality show called alone and usually i'm like i poo poo reality shows (laughs) yeah i'm not a fan of reality shows but mostly because some of the situations are contrived and you know someone basically is is making the show try to be as entertaining as possible and like throwing people into fake situations alone on the other hand essentially they just dropped 10 people off on Vancouver Island uh, in the Pacific Northwest and they taught them how to film themselves and everything and they're basically like whoever stays out here the longest wins and they didn't know if other people had quit they didn't see anybody for the entire time 
and whoever outlasted everyone else won the show and Alan won it. And so I was really excited to talk to him just about all the skills and tasks he had to do in order to basically survive in this really wild place. So yeah, check that out next week uh, with Alan K. That'd be great. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys are going out chasing your own goals, whatever they are. You know, whatever your goals are, enjoy the pursuit of them. Enjoy the moment you're in where you're actually chasing your goal. All right, we'll get back at you. See ya.